just nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, that Republican convention is looming, looming large. I don't know if I can take it. I, I notice they've got a comedian. He may or may not be on the stage at the Republican convention. He's trying. His name is Brad Stein, S-T-I-N-E. Heads up, heads up. An evangelical Christian comedian trying to cross over into mainstream media. So much media, so little mind. Uh, he's profiled in the current New Yorker. Uh, if this guy is funny, God help us. Uh, there's one joke in the article. Well, one that made me laugh. It's, uh, Brad Stein's take on gay marriage. Uh, he says, men marrying men? Pause, beat. Ha! Cowards! I, I suppose it's funny. Um, check it out. Check it out. Uh, I guess it was only a matter of time before we had that sort of catastrophe. I'm going to cheer myself up by going to see Arundhati Roy tomorrow night, Wednesday night, the 18th. She's at the Berkeley Community Theater. Uh, let's see. It's also David Barsamian and Amy Goodman and Boots Riley. Uh, you know Arundhati Roy. She is the author of The God of Small Things, a beautiful novel. Uh, it makes me want to go back and be a school teacher to teach a novel like The God of Small Things. It's all about the love laws. You know, the love laws, the laws that tell us who we can love and how much. In this case, in the case of this novel, it's about an untouchable... It's a woman with two children and she falls in love with um, an untouchable. And uh, as a result, his life is destroyed, her life is ruined, and her two children. It's most interesting. Uh, what the book shows, illustrates, um, what is that illuminates is the ways in which childhood childhood uh, colors the rest of our lives everything everything that happens to us begins back then when we are young and capable of um, having an open heart and then things change and we become what we are yes what we are I was listening to Amy Goodman this morning she's on tomorrow she's on uh, with uh, Arundhati tomorrow night and I was listening to Amy this morning 
And thinking about that, thinking about uh, how we get to be who we are. She's talking to Larry Flint. Uh, <laughs> when did Larry get to be a hero? A couple of weeks ago, I was complaining about Larry Flint, and I read some of the work of Andrea Dworkin, one of the feminist writers uh, for whom he has contempt. Um, it's curious. I... I'm a little confused. I, I know that it's a new age. I know it's 2004, and there was some talk this morning about Larry Flint and Gloria Steinem both being stuck in the 60s. Uh, excuse me. Uh, when did Larry Flint is a pimp, a sleaze peddler, a smut merchant. Um, Gloria Steinem, on the other hand, is a lifelong activist and freedom fighter. Uh, and also a, uh, what would you call that, uh, a mainstream publisher? Andrea Dworkin is a feminist scholar whose body of work has changed the lives of millions, millions of women. She herself has suffered um, terribly. She's pretty much, pretty much broken now. Uh, never mind. Uh, more about that some other time. What I would like to do today is cut back to something I was working on years and years ago. I, I thought we had settled these these problems. I thought we had at least let the air in, let the light in on the subjects of pornography, eros, all that good stuff. But uh, <laughs> apparently, apparently we still haven't settled these matters. Um, and the first time that I gave it. Uh, serious consideration, I think, was back in, well, let's see, the 70s, the 80s. We were trying to decide, um, you know, the difference between erotica and pornography. Uh, the lines that um, we should or should not cross. And, of course, it's confusing. Um, I wrote a piece called Eros in Chains. What I was trying to do was save the erotic, save the erotic from uh, the pornographers. It's something I wrote, let's see, it begins with an epigraph from Susan Griffin. She wrote a book called Pornography and Silence, Culture's Revenge Against Nature. She writes, above all, we will come to see that the woman in pornography like the Jew in anti-Semitism and the black in racism, is simply a lost part of the soul. To have knowledge of this forbidden part of the soul is to have eros. Yes, indeed, folks. Um, the forbidden the forbidden part of the soul. Uh, ah, the love laws, the love laws. Pornography, as I see it, pornography, is about slavery. There was a film years and years ago called Not a Love Story. And it featured Kate Millett. Kate Millett is the author of a book called Sexual Politics, a book that was a very serious scholastic study of uh, uh, sexual politics. Not very fashionable now, um, She's in the movie, Not a Love Story, and she explains that erotica is for it, that is, for sexuality, for sensuality. Uh, 
And pornography is against it. That is, it's against sexuality. Erotica, of course, is esoteric for most people. Uh, most of the time it's the property of the elite. It's not successful in the mass market, you know. Uh, now, I think that Kate Mellett's book, Sexual Politics, is the definitive study in Western culture uh, of the history and practice of the oppression of women. In the movie, Not a Love Story, Kate Millett is a gray-haired, loving presence. She sits on the floor in a big, loose sweater, and she explains that a few years ago, you know, in the late 60s, we were thinking in terms of liberation. Oh, boy, we said, nobody had ever seen a beaver. Oh, gosh, yes, we thought that those magazines, you know, might help young men and even young women figure these things out. Uh. <laughs> but, of course, she adds, it quickly became apparent that pornography had nothing to do with freedom. I have a footnote here. This last Sunday night, I was watching an episode of Six Feet Under, and there was a young woman who uh, has been sexually active for four seasons now in that show, and apparently she was non-orgasmic. And uh, she meets a young man who explains to her a method he calls grinding the corn. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's not done with... Um, it's done with some good taste. He, it's mostly uh, talk, but the notion that a um, a young woman of perhaps 20 is still completely in the dark about uh, what makes her body work. Uh, this is an HBO show, folks. Uh, I was stunned. I, I didn't think that, you know, we were still in the dark ages. Uh, let me go on about Not a Love Story. I don't know if it's available. It's um, something that came from the National Film Board of Canada. And I don't know whether you can get it. You can call your local store. Um, it's not a pretty picture. It's a guided tour of the pornography racket. And it's this guided tour is conducted by a, a photographer. Her name is Bonnie Shear Klein. Uh -huh. National Film Board of Canada. I think I have a, um, uh, a website and stuff for them. Anyway, they also produced the only acceptable film study on rape that I've ever seen. It was called Primal Fear, but there have been Hollywood movies with that title, so it confuses people. Anyway, in Not a Love Story, we're introduced to the pimp publishers and purveyors, you know, the kind of guys who make the unexamined life look like the seventh level of enlightenment, you know. The bottom line is bucks, and the industry has blossomed uh, Let's see, I have here figures, 1970, $5 million. By 1982, it was $5 billion, and you know what it is today, off off the charts, folks. Let's see, in 82, 1982, there were four times as many porn shops in the United States as McDonald's fast food outlets, and that's a lot of meat on the hook. Now, of course, it's part of the film industry, uh, what they're selling is the illusion of power. David S. Wells, publisher of five men's entertainment magazines, says, what's real doesn't sell. He tells the filmmaker, Bonnie Klein, he tells her that male domination is the best-selling fantasy. 
A woman kneeling at the feet of a man. You know, that's top gross, fellatio, obviously. Uh, these days, apparently, well, since, um, <laughs> since the recent brouhaha in the White House, it seems that, um, the blowjob is not sex. Anyway, it's just sort of, you know, a friendly gesture. Anyway, this guy, David Wells, attributes the growth of the industry to the growth of the women's movement in direct proportion. He says that men don't want equality. Right, right. It's about manhood, folks. His reasoning is as phallocentric as that of most male intellectuals, and it's far less pompous. <laughs> In patriarchy, male arousal is a sacrament. This is what Larry Flint uh, knows and was able to sell, make a fortune. Anyway, the documentary focuses on a Montreal stripper. Her name is Linda Lee Tracy. And what the filmmaker does is show you how this young woman changes her mind, changes her heart about the porn business. By the time the film ends, she has decided that the status quo sucks. <laughs> she goes through the looking glass and she discovers the humiliating world of thing, thingdom. Pornography, yes, and sadomasochism. Doing the dance. Hustler photographer Susan Randall turns Tracy's vulva into what she calls a flower with the aid of a lot of makeup and pussy juice. As Susan Griffin writes in Pornography and Silence, the pornographic camera performs a miracle in reverse. Looking on a living being, a person with a soul, it produces an image of a thing. Now, you remember the words sadism and masochism. You remember that they're derived from the names of male pornographers. Sadism comes from the Marquis de Sade, in whose works the bodies of women are punished. The word masochism also originated uh, with a man. Uh, it, it was a man's, not woman's, imagination. Uh, it's a guy called Leopold von Sacher. Uh, Leopold von Sacher, Masak, his hero cries, Whip me, whip me, I implore you. <laughs> anyway, Susan Griffith, Griffin is in the movie in the opening and closing scenes, that movie, Not a Love Story. And she speaks of the dominant culture's need to silence women. And this is what has always fascinated me. Uh, I'm in that category, you know, the women who talk too much. And even our nearest and dearest occasionally sigh and uh, look a little weary. Talk, 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 you know. In the movie, we see images of women muzzled, gagged. We see the head of a woman shut inside an Iron Maiden-type contraption. The silencing of women is a metaphor. It's also a fact. In the pornographic mind, the female is as dangerous as she is desired. Like nature herself, she must be mastered, controlled. Her sexuality can be expressed only in terms of his turn-on. You know, the way that game is played. The women are naked and vulnerable, the males are clothed, that kind of thing. The women must also perform, yes. Uh, who is it? I think, um, oh, Playboy, um, 
he's the one who says that woman is the naturally a performer and male is a voyeur. Uh, like female impersonators, we see women squirm submissively behind the glass window. The males put coins in the slot to raise the screens for a peek, you know, chatting to them on the phone. Uh, what could be more pitiable than this prurience? Uh, I remember your personal memory. I, uh, I'm grateful that most of the uh, people that I... Uh, well, let, let us say that um, we never speak ill of the dead, but there are those who have gone to the other side, and we can now chat about them. I remember my father-in-law explaining to me once he had a key to the Playboy Club, and he explained that they were very nice girls, you see. You couldn't touch them. Uh, they were therefore respectable from his point of view and uh, intellectual, yes, um, uh, well-read college girls, right. Uh, in the movie, I watch scenes of women tied up and tortured and mutilated and, <laughs> you know, you get this feeling of history transported back in time. You could smell the fire and the brimstone, uh, medieval woodcuts of witches and saints tortured and breasts cut off because the church fathers believed they were possessed of the devil. Hmm. <laughs> Christianity is not dead, never was, yes. Come to think of it, Christ himself was the victim of patriarchal sadomasochism. That's what crucifixion is, folks. Priests and pornographers have a lot in common. They certainly believe that we must burn the witch, the bitch. Uh-huh. Within woman is the serpent of the knowledge of themselves, the knowledge of their own vulnerability and mortality. Rather than face their own shadows, their own self-hatred, they scapegoat the woman or the black or the Jew, anything we can call the other. Oh, how we suffer from otherism. Anything to cast out our fears. Of course, in the act of humiliating, tormenting, and even killing others, we do purge ourselves of compassion, empathy, and eros. It's the process of becoming a Nazi. What is the name of that film, The Damned, I think? Uh, yes, uh, Visconti's The Damned. I remember uh, the question is, how do you become a Nazi? And, of course, it's uh, by raping and killing your mother. Uh Patriarchal religion and pornography uh, both teach, with their iconography, they teach, as St. Paul did, that it is good for man not to touch woman. Misogyny is the death of the heart. I looked at the film's twisted pornographic images of tormented women, and I thought of the feminist writer Robin Morgan, she describes today's world as uh, Bosch-like, that is, Hieronymus Bosch, the 15th century Dutch painter of hells and holocausts. She says that just as James Baldwin stated that it was impossible to be black and conscious in America without being in a continual state of rage, so for her it's impossible to be a woman and conscious in the world without being always enraged. 
I remember that sequence, yes. I was irritated by Robin Morgan's husband. He gives the impression his life is a living hell of impotence and powerlessness. Ah, I wanted to tell him that marriage to super femmes, uh, it's no picnic either. Ask the men who know. The guy's obviously sincerely miserable, as well as concerned about the lives of women. But I can't help thinking about liberal bleeding hearts, the white ones, you know, who weep over the sorrows of black uh, Americans. You know, they wring their hands and wallow in the other one's woe. They call it empathy. Eleanor Roosevelt used to do that. I remember uh, the writer, well, Richard Wright. He said that he, he didn't care to listen to any more liberal uh, bleeding hearts. And he got angry and wrote his book, um, the book about uh, Bigger Thomas. And he said he wanted to show that suffering does not necessarily ennoble people. He wanted to show in his book Native Son that suffering can sometimes uh, turn people into monsters. Uh, the most conscious guy in the film Not a Love Story is an ex-porn star. His name was Mark Stevens. He said, I couldn't keep it up. He says, porn filmmakers aren't interested in real emotions, just the mechanics, don't you know? Mm-hmm. He said, when was the last time you saw a porn film in which the lovers are partners in delirium rather than simply manipulating each other? He says he even loved some of the women he worked with, but didn't come through on the screen. Uh, he was asked if he felt degraded by his job, and he seemed surprised and laughed at the irony, saying, it was impossible to be degraded when the whole focus was on his cock. Uh, during a meeting of males against violence, this is in the film, we watched these nice guys, these sweet souls, um, feeling sorry for themselves. They say, pornography is one more way of taking our feelings away. And the world is telling me how to hate, not how to be intimate. Actually, in those days, back in the 70s, there was a cheerful, courageous group hereabouts. Oh, men overcoming violence. And that crowd is still around. And I think there are a lot of groups now, men who understand that uh, we're all in this together. I look forward to the day when the focus of more men's groups is directed toward the behavior of their brothers. Uh, just at present, they seem to want to concentrate on their personal anguish, you know. I remember in women's consciousness raising groups, uh, <laughs> I, I remember thinking at the time, wait until the men discover their feelings. You ain't seen nothing yet. Actually, come to think of it, men may need to go through even more hand-wringing than women, than females, Whatever works. Uh, last week I was uh, chatting up Bill Clinton's book, and um, I'm afraid that Bill Clinton does qualify as a new age male, some guy who's trying to examine his life and figure out what makes him tick. He does not go far enough, no question about it, but at least he's trying. Uh, we know that the capacity to love begins with an acceptance and love of the self. There's a lot of complaint these days about narcissism, solipsisms, you know, uh, a preoccupation with your own pain and anguish. But the truth is, most people do have to work through some of that stuff. 
I think you can do both at the same time. I think that you can actually be working on yourself and at the same time doing a little outreach, checking up on other people, empathizing. Once we have embraced our own confusion, you know, then we have the capacity to uh, touch the other people. Uh, ah, it's called sharing, and we know that pornography prevents touching. In the pornographic mind, there's this split, you see. Uh, what was it? Somebody said once that pornography is about things that can be had. I saw a film the other night. There was a gentleman. He was complaining that the sex workers had been taken away from the place where he usually goes to meet them. <laughs> They're getting out of town during the Republican convention. He said, well, you know, he goes down in the corner and he buys his liquor and his tobacco and his sex. And it wasn't available, you know, it wasn't there to be had. Uh, there's this schism, this schism in the soul, and, uh, you know, it throws us all into an abyss of silence and death unless a connection is made. Connection between sex and passion, sex and love. Whether we know it or not, uh, sex and life have a great deal in common. <laughs> I wish I could go on to the next essay called Sexual Politics in the Stone Age. Elaine Morgan's The Descent of Woman and the Tarzan Figure, yes. Never mind, never mind. I hope that I see some of you at the Arundhati Roy uh, talk at the Berkeley Community Theater tomorrow night at 7.30. And I do want to talk uh, maybe next week about... Um, Six feet under. I have so many friends that um, are, what is it, are turning against that show. They think it's a, a politically incorrect soap opera. And I'm just crazy about it. If you have the um, current New Yorker, there's a profile, as I said, of Brad Stein in it. And there's also a review of a Broadway revival of Arthur Miller's play, After the Fall. And one of the characters from Six Feet Under is cast in the lead. It's a mistake. Uh, it's Peter Krause. He's the actor who plays Nate in Six Feet Under, the HBO series that's in its fourth season now. It's a catastrophe to cast this actor as Arthur Miller's uh, lead character, Quentin. Uh, it's actually an autobiographical character. Arthur Miller himself is Quentin. He's caught in a midlife crisis with Maggie, his second wife. That would be Marilyn Monroe, folks. This is way, way, way too much for Peter Cross to carry. This guy is typecast as Nate in Six Feet Under, and he's beautifully, brilliantly cast there as a completely self-involved, unevolved child man. I love this guy. He breaks my heart, but uh, he's the one cast adrift. He's so empty. He can't even comfort his mother to say nothing of uh, give his girlfriends, his women lovers, some confidence, some support. A role like Quentin demands um, a much more mature soul, a soul in torment. Quentin, too, is one of those men who is unable to love but like Arthur Miller himself, he's imaginative enough to find this deeply painful. That's what it. Franz Kafka wrote, What is hell? He wrote, yes. Brothers and teachers, I ponder. 
What is hell? Hell is the inability, the impossibility of being able to love. Yes, somebody wrote, yes, fear of feeling. In Six Feet Under, there is uh, one character who might play Quentin. It's James Cromwell. I don't know, perhaps he's not good-looking enough. Check it out. He plays the husband of Ruth, and he's the guy everybody loves to hate. <laughs> it was a wonderful scene last Sunday night in which he looked at a little child. He can only cry when he's alone. The little child spills their or juice on the floor and he breaks into tears says that's what it is dear life is just one accident after another I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20 till then go easy and if you can't go easy go as easy as you can light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadow water. Around the world, corporations are rushing to invest in the new get-rich economy of water, privatizing what has been a common resource. But water is a human right. One has the right to live, one has the right to water. Hear how people around the world are fighting back and defending access to clean and affordable water for all. You're invited to a benefit at the Ecology Center with Speaker Juliet Beck of Public Citizen on August 19th. For more information, call 510-548-2220, extension 233, or visit ecologycenter.com.